Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship at Faith Community United Methodist. It's good to be with you this morning. I'd uh, invite you to find the attendance pads that are in the pews and fill those out. Uh, Make sure you pass them to others worshiping beside you so that they can fill them out as well. And welcome to those who are worshiping with us online as well. We're glad that you have joined us and we hold you with us in spirit as we worship together. There are the uh, 2021 giving statements are in the narthex in a box on the table there, and there will be a couple of ladies out there after the service passing those out. Uh, Save us some postage if we can hand those out here. So uh, if you would pick up your 2021 giving statement after the service today, we would appreciate that. We join together this morning in worship, and so I invite you into an attitude of worship uh, as the uh, choir presents the music of the intro. Deposes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. Do, O God of my ancestors, I give thanks and praise. Please join with us in the opening hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, hymn number 496.
may be seated and please join with me in our opening prayer. On this holy day, we come together to make sense of our lives. We look, up, we look to your word, O oh God, as a source of understanding. Revive our souls that our hearts may rejoice in your presence. Cleanse and enlighten us with your truth. Liberate us from self-imposed limitations. Let the word of our mouths and the mediations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our prayer hymn is Open My Eyes That I May See, hymn number 450. God, we, your faithful people, come together at this time and in this place that you have given us as a gift 
where we might seek your presence. We come together as a community because we know, Lord, that you have not called us to to live the Christian life on our own. We never could live the Christian life on our own. We need one another. We need to be reminded of your word with one another. And so we thank you for this church, this gift that you've given us, where we can be surrounded by friends and family, surrounded by your love, surrounded by your word. And we come now to seek your presence and your grace and your mercy. Lord, we pray that this will indeed be a sweet hour of prayer in which we are touched once again by your glory and your grace. Lord, fall upon us as we open ourselves to your Holy Spirit, as we open ourselves to all that you have for us. You tell us, Lord, to cast all of our cares upon you, and so we do that now in this time of silence as we lift to you all of our cares and concerns. Lord, we thank you for hearing us. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for knowing us even better than we know ourselves. We thank you for providing all that we need. We entrust ourselves and our loved ones to your gracious care. And we place ourselves at your mercy because we know that you are a gracious and loving God. That you have restored us time and time again and that you will do that again this day. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, in in whose name we offer now the words that you teach us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us continue to worship by presenting our tithes and our offerings as the ushers wait upon us.
please join me in the prayer of dedication. Spirit of God, who inspired the scriptures and gave them fulfillment in Jesus Christ, open our eyes to the gifts you have entrusted to each one of us and show us how to work together to realize your purposes in our midst. We long to live in a world where mutual caring and support replace competition and violence. Help us to honor one another's gifts and strive for the greatest of all gifts, the embodiment of your love. Amen. Please be seated. Our scripture, le- scripture lesson comes from Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 and 16 through 19. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will reveal the interpretation. The king answered the Chaldeans, This is a public decree. If you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you do tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time, and he would tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. The word of God for the people of God.
Dreams are funny things. I usually only remember little snippets and images from my dreams. When I try to piece it all together, it really makes no sense. The dreams are so far out there that I can't really remember what it was about after I wake up. There are a, a few that stick with me. I, I still to this day remember a nightmare I had when I was a little kid. I was on the landing of a, a staircase in a department store, and there was a giant white glove, larger than my entire body. It wasn't attached to a person, just a giant hand in a white glove trying to smash me, trying to just pound me. It was terrifying. I, I've had numerous dreams over the years uh, that were set in amusement parks. That seems to be a recurring theme for me, amusement parks. Those I always remember. I, I remember where I was, what ride I was trying to get on, who I was with, what the lines were like, what rides were shut down before I could get there. Beyond that, though, like I said, most of my dreams are, are disconnected images that, that don't make a whole lot of sense. If there's any message to be gained from them, it, it's probably that I shouldn't have eaten what I did the night before. Dreams, though, can be a lot more than that. They can be a window into our soul. They can be a communication from God. That is certainly the case in many times in the Bible. There was Joseph in the book of Genesis who had dreams revealing his own greatness even over his own brothers. Those dreams got him into trouble with them, but they turned out to be a revelation from God. He then became an interpreter of dreams to the Pharaoh and an honored servant in Pharaoh's court. There was also Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew. Different Joseph, but Likewise, a dreamer, God spoke to him in a dream, telling him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, for the child conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. And God spoke to him in another dream, warning him to flee with his family into Egypt to escape the deranged King Herod who was seeking to kill the baby Jesus. So we see throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God speaks to people through dreams. In more modern days, it was a dream of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That, that transformed our country. Whether that was a literal dream that came to him in his sleep or, or a vision that came during waking moments, there's no doubt that it was a vision from God, that it was a dream in which God was speaking not just to an individual, but to an entire nation. A dream that we as a nation still consider the meaning of almost 60 years later. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. To him, was a nightmare. Not that anything actually happened in the dream. There, there doesn't seem to be any storyline to it. It doesn't appear that the, the great statue he saw in the dream was coming after him, trying to squash him like a bug, like the giant glove tried to do to me as a kid. But he was terrified nonetheless. Verse 1 of Daniel 2 tells us he dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Whatever this vision meant, Nebuchadnezzar knew it wasn't good. This giant statue was scary, and he needed to know why. What, what did it mean? What was so terrifying about this statue that he saw in his sleep? So terrifying that his spirit was troubled, and he could not sleep again. He knew that there was some message in this, some kind of meaning to it. It wasn't just the Jewish people to whom God spoke in dreams, people in other religions and other cultures knew that sometimes dreams have meaning. I'm sure they also knew that sometimes dreams are completely senseless. Sometimes they're just a collection of images and situations all thrown together in no particular order and for no particular reason. But sometimes, 
Sometimes you have a dream and you know within yourself, there's something to that. That one means something. So it has been throughout the ages and throughout cultures. Throughout the ages and throughout cultures, people have tried different ways of, of explaining the meaning of their dreams. Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung had a method of reducing dreams to certain archetypes that play out in our subconscious. The ancient Babylonians had a much different method of interpretation. Verse 2 says, The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. They would use their magical powers and, and their occult practices to, to discern the meaning of the dreams. Or perhaps they would just make it up. I suspect that that is what King Nebuchadnezzar was suspicious of. That's why he wouldn't tell them what the dream was. If he told them what the dream was, then they could easily put whatever spin on it they wanted to, tell him what it, that it meant whatever they wanted it to mean, or tell him something that they knew he would like to hear. Who in their position wouldn't do that? Oh, king, this dream that you had of this great statue with the golden head shows that you are at the top. All of the powers of this world are weaker and beneath you, and so it shall be forever and ever. Amen. Long live the king. That may be what the king wanted to hear, but only if it was the truth. That, more than anything, was what the king wanted to hear, the truth. And he knew that the only way he could trust their interpretation of the dream is if he kept the content of the dream a secret for them to reveal through their secret arts. If they could discern through their powers what he dreamed, then, they, then he could trust them to discern through those same powers what the dream meant. But if they could not, then that put their entire profession into question. In fact, after the Chaldeans pled the king to tell them the dream so that they could interpret it for him, this is exactly what he says to them. Verse 9, if you do not tell me the dream, there is but one verdict for you. You have agreed to speak lying and misleading words to me until things take a turn. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know you can give me its interpretation. In other words, stop blowing smoke up my you-know-what. Don't, don't tell me what you think I want to hear. Give it to me straight. If the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans could not tell him the dream along with the interpretation, then that proved them all to be frauds, and they would all put to death. Now let's pause there in the story for a moment to consider the timing of this scene as it appears in the book. There are some scholars who claim that chapter 2 of Daniel can't possibly line up with chapter 1 of Daniel because of historical inaccuracies, discrepancies. Last week I said that, that these supposed discrepancies are based on false assumptions, so let me give you some examples. Chapter 1 says that King Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem in the third year of King Jehoiakim, but we know from many other historical records that Nebuchadnezzar didn't become king of Babylonia until the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. And there are no records of him in Jerusalem until that time. Furthermore, in chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends were put through a three-year process of enculturation, after which time they were presented to the king and found great honor with him and became part of his court. But then in chapter 2, it says that this story takes place during the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and Daniel and his friends are already members of the king's court, but the king hasn't yet met them. 
How can all of these different facts be pieced together? Well, they can be pieced together pretty simply, actually. The historical record shows that Nebuchadnezzar was conducting military campaigns while his father, Nabopolassar, was still king of Babylonia. The record even shows that he was conducting raids in Egypt and Palestine on behalf of his father. It's not unreasonable to believe that his first attack against Jerusalem happened during that time and that because he would later and forever be known as King Nebuchadnezzar, a history written some years later would refer to him as King Nebuchadnezzar even when telling of a time before he became king. Just like we today when speaking of a former president might refer to him as President Eisenhower, even if we were talking about the year before he actually became president. If that's the case, and it's all perfectly reasonable and perfectly in line with the historical record, then the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which is when chapter 2 is set, would be the third year after he carried Daniel and his friends into exile, which would put this story right at the end of their three-year training. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 say, at the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one could compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Israel. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. Chapter 2, then is the expanded story of when and how that took place. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 are not in conflict with each other's timelines. Rather, chapter 2 is telling the whole story of what was condensed in those three verses of chapter 1. The two line up perfectly. This story is precisely how Daniel and his friends were found to be ten times greater than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom at the end of their three years of training. Because... Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. But Daniel's wisdom, his understanding, his uncanny ability to provide the interpretation that the king so desperately desired had nothing to do with the Babylonian secret arts. It was not because of his three-year training in the ways and means of Babylon that Daniel was given this ability. It was because Throughout that three years of training, he refused to succumb to the ways and means of Babylon and instead remained faithful to God. Daniel told the king boldly, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show the king the mystery that the king is asking. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel would not give the king what he wanted by any of the ways taught him over the past three years. Those ways were worthless, as testified by the utter failure of all the king's other servants. But where all the means of this world fail, there is a God in heaven who succeeds. It was to God to whom Daniel turned for the answer, because according to Daniel, it was God who created the mystery in the first place. It was God who had given the king this dream and troubled his spirit with these visions. Only God could tell him what it all meant because God was the author 
of it all. But we need to jump back before Daniel approached the king with this message, before Daniel received the dream and its interpretation. What did Daniel do before that? He went to his friends for prayer. He asked them to beseech the Lord together. Daniel knew he wasn't going to figure this one out on his own. He wasn't going to be able to sit down and think up in his own mind what he could say that would placate the king. He knew that he needed God to direct him, and he knew that he needed his friends to be engaged with him and for him in prayer in order for that to happen. I'm sure that there was some urgency, perhaps even a hint of desperation in Daniel's voice when he pled with his friends to seek the Lord and his mercy while there was time. All of their lives were in danger. The king had already decreed that all of the soothsayers were to be killed. The king had already chastised some of them for trying to gain more time. The king was not inclined to decline the to delay this any longer. But Daniel sought some extra time from the king nonetheless. He did this with with the promise that he would be able to deliver what the king was demanding. He begged the king for some time because he knew that he needed that time to be in prayer with his friends, seeking the Lord together. It wasn't enough for Daniel simply to lift up a a momentary plea to God. God, please give me the answer I'm looking for and give it to me right now. No, that, that wasn't going to cut it. Daniel and his faithful friends needed to devote time, lots of time, together in prayer, seeking the Lord, pleading God's mercy, asking God's guidance, pursuing God's wisdom. The Bible doesn't tell us how much time exactly, but just the fact that Daniel had to beg the king for this time to go pray with his friends shows that what was needed in this situation was more than just a quick one-off prayer. This was, this was an all-night not doing anything else, not allowing any other distractions, being completely committed to seeking the Lord together kind of prayer meeting. And in response to their dedication, The Lord delivered to Daniel the answer he was seeking. The Lord showed Daniel both the vision that the king had dreamed and what God was saying through it. Daniel went to the king, told him the exact image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dreams. Nebuchadnezzar then, astounded that that Daniel knew exactly what he had dreamed, also knew that he could trust Daniel to tell him exactly what it meant which could not have been an easy thing to do, either for Daniel to say it or for the king to hear it. For what that dream meant was that Nebuchadnezzar's reign would be short-lived. His kingdom would soon be replaced by another, which in turn would be replaced by another and then another, and all of them would crumble in the end. Nebuchadnezzar his reign, his power, his authority, his honor, all of it would come to nothing. 
Daniel doesn't specifically name the empires represented in the dream, other than to say that the golden head is Nebuchadnezzar himself, king of Babylon, sovereign over all the known world. As we get further into Daniel's own visions later in the book, we'll see more about the other empires represented by the various metals in this dream. What's important in the context of this dream given to Nebuchadnezzar, though, is to know that all of them, all of these empires of this world, would be superseded by a stone cut out not by human hands, and that stone would smash the feet of iron and clay, and every other bit of the statue would fall in shambles and be scattered by the wind, never to be seen again. A stone which, according to the dream, became a great mountain and filled all the earth. That stone, that stone not made by human hands, that stone that would crush all the kingdoms of this earth, is the Christ. And the mountain which filled all the world is the kingdom of God, which takes precedence over all the kingdoms of this world and indeed smashes to pieces all other claims to authority, honor, and power. In the end, only Christ will reign supreme. In the end, only the kingdom of God will be left standing and it will fill the entire earth. King Nebuchadnezzar, to his great credit, accepted these words of Daniel. He acknowledged the truth that he, Nebuchadnezzar, although at that time he was the almighty king of all the known world, in comparison to God, he was absolutely nothing. In the end, his kingdom would be dust in the wind. Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, Nebuchadnezzar confessed. Now we'll read a story next week that shows that he didn't really get it, that, that the lesson hadn't completely sunk in. His confession of God was short-lived, but at least for that moment, at least in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar knew the truth. If only he could have held on to that truth. You see, that is, is perhaps the, the biggest challenge for us to hold on to that truth all the time. We probably all had those moments of clarity, those moments where we see the truth of how minuscule we really are and how infinite God is, how insignificant are our plans and desires, how sovereign is our God? And yet how often we turn back to doing things our own way, focusing on what we want, trying to build up our little kingdoms here on earth as if that could ever come to anything. All of it is dust. We know that. We see that. We're, we're given a glimpse of that truth, and yet, we keep on building that kingdom for ourselves. What will keep us from committing such foolishness time and time again? Perhaps we could start where Daniel started. Earnestly seeking the Lord in prayer. 
not in fleeting moments, and, and not on his own, but with his gathered friends within the community of faith, with time, lots of time set aside for seeking the Lord? What if we were to tell the kings and, and powers of this world, those, those forces that, that try to direct us and press against us with deadly force, what if we said to them, give me some time, I need to go pray with my friends? And then we actually went and prayed with our friends, gathered together as brothers and sisters in the faith to beseech the Lord together, to devote time to sit in God's presence, to just sit in God's presence together and wait for Him to give us that vision, to put the right words in our mouths, to lead us in all of our actions. Then we would be acknowledging that there truly is only one kingdom that will stand forever. That there truly is only one King. May we always be submitted to His rule over all. Amen. I invite you now to, to stand as you're able and let us sing of his greatness with our closing hymn, How Great Thou Art. It's number 77.
invite you to please be seated. Our God is truly great, greater than words could even express, greater than all the powers and kingdoms of this world combined. As you go from this place, may you continue to seek Him, His glory, and His power in all things. And all God's people said, Amen. 